You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. The best serving everybody. Here he is, and his name is Dr. Ken Turner, better known all over the world as Dr. History. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. How are you doing this morning? Hey, I don't know if you were listening. You should have been because we're going to have an oral exam on this right now. Uh, but last hour I had Michelle Matthews on from the Times News, and you know they had some recent stories about the Oregon Trail and everything and about the ruts and all the, the stricker cabins and everything else. And the reason I put her on right before you is the fact that you personalize everything. You go into these stories and put names with faces and verbiage about what happened and everything and you do a fantastic job with history that's why we call you dr history well to me it's uh history is the individual person you know their stories that's what to me brings it alive you know when i can read somebody's journal or diary uh, that's what is fascinating to me. Absolutely. So that's, that's why I enjoy that part of it. Well, now, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to talk about the life of a soldier on the western frontier. Oh, boy. Now, you know, most people picture uh, the uh, Indians attacking the wagon train, and you hear the bugle sound, and here comes the cavalry to save the day, and sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, we're just gonna. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the uh, kind of the Indian Wars, you know, back and forth between the Indians and, and the cavalry, and uh, you know, in the, in the struggle to subdue the Indians, the U.S. military had a lot of advantages over its opponents. Now, unlike the Indians, who were accustomed to pretty loosely organized, small-scale fighting, uh, the soldiers fought as a group under the direction of trained officers. Uh, Army warfare strategies were used and sophisticated and effective methods. Uh, and experience showed that a force of a trained and well-equipped soldier uh, uh, army could usually win a battle, mm-hmm. yeah, even if it was uh, pretty much outnumbered. Uh, now, enhancing the Army's advantage was its uh, superior communication technology. Uh, they actually had use of the telegraph when the engine didn't cut the telegraph line. And also, they used an instrument called a heliograph. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of a heliograph, Zeb. No. Uh, I hadn't. But, so I checked in, uh, what it is, and basically, it's an instrument that is a series of mirrors, and you use a sunlight, and there's a way that they can move some type of a shutter system to turn this off and on, off and on, and thereby they can send signals from, say, one... Uh, hill to the next hill. Uh, so they had a couple of methods of communication that the Indians didn't have. You know, I, I did yeah. see that. Uh, uh, hold on just a minute, Dr. History. Uh, I did see that on a movie one time. I believe it was in a John Wayne movie that uh, it's a series of mirrors and they could flash uh, kind of a Morse code type thing to the other soldiers. Isn't that what you're talking about? Right. Exactly. Okay. I, I tried to find a picture of one and I haven't found one yet, but... Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, 
these were highly sophisticated, uh, trained uh, soldiers uh, going against the Indians, which, you know, except for Sitting Bull, uh, who they claimed they thought that maybe he had some specific training in military uh, warfare because of what he did with Custer. Uh, but basically, they were not well trained like the, like the military were. Now, another advantage the Army had over the Indians was its manpower in the field. Uh, the military could usually call up reinforcements. The Indians didn't have these reserves. Uh, furthermore, the Army's relative abundance of men meant that military leaders could afford to make some uh, somewhat riskier moves, uh, as can be attested by our good friend, uh, 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 Mr. Custer. <laughs> uh, but the Indians, you know, losing warriors in battle meant a significant reduction in hunters and fighters for the tribe. Now, the Army could always recruit more soldiers, but... You know, it would take an Indian tribe a generation to replace lost warriors. In fact, uh, you know, when they had when they had intertribal battles, a lot of times there was a lot of shooting going on, but not a lot of hitting. And uh, so uh, the Indians really didn't have a lot of casualties when they fought each other. Again, because um, most of the tribes were very small tribes, and so to lose even one or two... Uh, Warriors also meant that you were losing some hunters for the tribes. So. Right. But the Army also had the clear advantage of modern weapons, as opposed to the Indians, bows and arrows, of course. And even when they had guns, the Indians tended to have old models that were not very accurate. They were slower to reload. And in addition, in addition the guns they had were in poor condition. And they had neither the parts nor the knowledge uh, how to repair them. And the Indians were also uh, less skilled in using firearms because because they usually didn't have much ammunition, they didn't practice. They didn't uh, do any target shooting. Mm -hmm. So they tended to shoot their rifles uh, randomly at soldiers at point-blank range in the midst of the battle. And the Army rifles, they were more accurate at a longer range. And uh, so the soldiers were trained in distance shooting, so they were able to keep the Indians back far enough that uh, they couldn't really return fire very well. Now, if heavier firepower was required, a detachment could take uh, Gatling guns or howitzers into the field, and the armory also had uh, access to supplies, including ammunition. Uh, in fact, again, we refer back to General Custer, and, you know, he had these things, but they were too far behind him to, to do any good. So the Indians had a few advantages of their own, uh, however. Uh, the troops were trained in conventional warfare, uh, but they were ill-prepared to deal with the Indians, which usually used kind of a hit-and-run tactic. Right. And the Indians exploited that weakness for many years until the Army kind of adapted to what they were doing. So the Indians usually knew the land much better than soldiers, too. Uh, the Apache, for example, had thrived for generations in the deserts and the Rocky Mountain uh, terrain of the southwest. And this was pretty tough for the uh, soldiers. They, they weren't used to fighting that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of them had actually come out of uh, Civil War service and from back east. Now, several key strategies employed by the military were instrumental in winning the Indian Wars. Now, the main offensive tactic as a uh, strategy, uh, almost as old as war itself, was the surprise attack. Mm -hmm. uh, while the attackers could take their time putting themselves in position, and uh, of course the startled defenders had to scramble to fight or, or get away, uh, catching the enemy unaware and unprepared was very often enough to win a fight, uh, regardless of how many people you had. Uh, in Indian Wars, though, a surprise attack usually meant striking a village, which inevitably resulted in the death of women, children, and old people. Right. Now, 
Unfortunately, the Army considers this just a kind of an unfortunate but acceptable by, byproduct of doing battle. In fact, uh, again, referring back to General George Custer, uh, I'm going to quote him. He says, well, he says, the Indian women are as dangerous as adversaries as the warriors. And he said, the Indian boys, 10 to 15 years of age, are found to be as expert and determined in the use of the pistol and the bow and arrow as the older warriors. So again, they rationalized that it was okay to kill the women and the children, unfortunately. Now, one effective Indian fighting technique that incorporated the element of surprise was winter warfare. Uh, because most campaigns took place in the spring, summer, and the fall, when travel was the easiest, winter attacks were generally not expected by the Indians. So under the harsh conditions of winter, Indians on the plains were nearly immobilized and pretty much unable to wage war against the other tribes. So everybody just assumed among the Indians that the white soldiers were also immobilized. And so the Indian winter camps were usually uh, unprotected and pretty easy prey for the soldiers. Um, but again, like I say, the Indian tribes, they just figured, you know, nobody's going to fight during the winter. Now, while winter campaigns were brutal for both sides, the Indians were particularly vulnerable. I mean, game and berries were scarce in the winter, so the Indians had to rely on their what they'd stored in food supplies, which usually re depleted fairly rapidly in the, as the winter months passed. Soldiers, on the other hand, were generally, now not always, uh, well supplied with food and other necessities throughout the winter. Mm -hmm. Now, also scarce in the winter was grass for the horses. As you know, the Indian ponies, they'd send it on forage. They'd just, uh, you know, use their hooves. You've seen horses do this, where they just, you know, uh, plow through the snow to get to the grass underneath. But uh, on the other hand, these soldiers, uh, they had grain-fed horses that stayed pretty strong. Mm -hmm. And again, that was not always the case, because uh, sometimes the soldiers didn't get the grain or the hay that, that they were needing for their horses. Now, another advantage the Army capitalized on was its mobility. During a surprise attack on the village that was buried in the snow, the Indians could not easily get away. So in order to escape, the Indians had to move their entire winter camp, which included the women, the children, the old people, horses, dogs, teepees, food supplies. And conversely, the pursuing soldiers had carry only a few items all right uh and again they had the support of uh, wagons uh behind them that had all their supplies so they were able to move a lot faster now though they were better equipped to deal with the challenges of winter warfare than their native counterparts uh, soldiers also suffered during this winter campaigns on the great plains uh i mean they had storms and frigid temperatures uh just like the indians the men faced frostbite hypothermia I mean, horses and mules died in fierce blizzards. Uh, they became stranded in the snow. Now, in spite of the difficulties, these Army strategists considered the winter months a good time to attack. And, indeed, some of the most important and successful campaigns were uh, taking place during the wintertime. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, kind of an interesting tactic the Indians learned as they went along here. Because of their inability to fight in the winter, some of the tribes learned to open peace negotiations with the whites in the fall, uh, and perhaps even going back to their reservation for the winter, uh, and then in the spring they start raiding again. Oh my! And uh, this is not something unusual. I mean, the Indians had treaties broken time and time again, and so for them to go in the fall, meet with the soldiers, and say, "Okay, we'll sign a treaty with you guys. We'll be good." Uh, so during the winter, they'd sit on the reservation, they'd gather up ammunition, food, whatever they needed, and then in the spring they'd just take off and go out and uh, 
start doing what they did. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, the army kind of caught on to this, and eventually they uh, realized that that wasn't uh, wasn't working for them. So, part of the army's strategy in attacking in attacking villages, whether in winter or summer, was to destroy the Indians' shelter and food supplies, uh, to capture or kill the horses, and kill, capture, or drive away all the Indians. And whatever Indians survived uh, the initial attack, they were exposed to the elements and often starved uh, or died of exposure. And this uh, this tactic was called total warfare. Now, the doctrine of total war uh, kind of discarded the conventional warfare uh, rules uh, because flags of truce were not recognized, women and children were killed, and all their possessions were just totally destroyed. Uh, Zeb, are you still there? Yeah, I'm just sitting here. I'm infatuated, and, and I'm scared to interrupt I'm, I'm, you. I'm actually calling from Boise, and I'm uh, on my cell phone, so I'm hoping that all that you were coming through okay. Yeah, the, the main thing uh, is we've got to make sure on future broadcasts that we don't use a cell phone. That's not a good tool for these rebroadcasts, so we want to try to stay with a landline. Right, and I apologize for that today. It was kind of a... All I had to, uh, to use today. So, well, anyway, uh, again, like I said, the, uh, uh, the 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 soldiers would pretty well destroy everything that the Indians had. Right. Uh, when they would attack a village, teepees were uh, they would use some for their wounded men. But uh, really, there must have been tons of dried buffalo meat and uh, saddles, bridles, various robes, and everything that was destroyed. In fact, one soldier told of, uh, he said uh, when they destroyed things, there was 418 uh, animals were captured, 10,000 pounds of dried meat, 84 lodges complete, uh, 1,000 buffalo robes, 78 rifles and revolvers, and large quantities of supplies that were completely destroyed. And, you know, as a historian, I think of all those relics, Indian relics that were destroyed, and, you know, we do have some great samples in some of the museums but again I think of all the things that were lost and destroyed and burned let me ask you a question there, Doc. Hold on just a second. Um, when you talk about these Indian camps, and I know you've probably studied this, but I have never read, did they have like certain areas or certain teepees or certain shelters that they devoted just to the keeping and storage of food? You know, that's a great question, and I can't really say that I know the answer to that. I just... From my understanding, I my understanding is that each uh, Indian with his family basically stored up what they needed for the winter. I don't know that they had a common area for storage. Now, maybe they did for, well, I was going to say the Buffalo Rose, but even that, I think they probably just kept their own. Mm-hmm. That's just a guess on that. Okay. So, but anyway, uh, when you think about the Great Plains, they were pretty much dominated by the Sioux, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, the Comanche, and the Kiowa. And before 1850, it wasn't too bad. Uh, There was a few settlers and a few gold prospectors that roamed out west, and the Plains Indians just really didn't pay much attention to them. They didn't harass them much. But by the mid-century, more and more travelers were making the trek westward, and then again, thousands of fortune seekers took off for California gold fields uh, uh, after the gold strike at Sutter's Mill, and and then families in search of better life, they headed for the fertile farmlands up in Oregon. 
And so, obviously, with the rapid increase of white men along the, uh, along with the establishment of forts and the arrival of the Overland stage, well, the Indians started to get a little worried because they realized what this invasion really meant. Right. And a major worry for them was that, uh, you know, all the game would be driven away or killed, leaving them with really no source of food. And they feared that they would be reduced to beggars, uh, existing on government subsidies. And so to drive these strangers off their traditional hunting grounds and ranges, the Indians started raiding settlements and killing the white people. And so for the next 40 years, it brought a succession of skirmishes and broken treaties uh, before the Plains tribes were finally placed on reservations. So, again, we've talked about this, Zeb, that... Uh, you know, the Indians were leaving, living a life that they uh, considered was their land, their animals, the buffalo, the deer, the elk, and here come the white people just invading their grounds. Now, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit, just briefly, I know we're about out of time, about some of the uh, major players in the Old West in the military. Okay. Uh, there are some pretty prominent military men who came out of this. Uh, William Tecumseh Sherman mm -hmm. became commander-in-chief of the entire army in 1869. That's right. Now, another guy that was uh, a standout was uh, Philip Henry Sheridan. Mm -hmm. uh, when Sh uh, Sherman retired, Sheridan became the general-in-chief of the army. Now, another guy that stands out is uh, uh, Alfred Howe Terry. And, of course, he was involved in the Battle of the Little Bighorn uh, with Custer. And then there was another guy that also was involved in that, uh, George Crook. And they say that he was probably the greatest Indian fighter of his time. Uh, he fought Indians in Idaho, Oregon, Arizona, just all over the West. And, in fact, Crook was the one that finally forced Geronimo's surrender. And, of course, we can't go too much farther without talking about uh, our friend General George Armstrong Custer. And... Uh, you know, to his credit, he was a national hero. And, uh, of course, he met his fate at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Yeah, but you can also you, you can also say about General George Custer that uh, you can graduate last in your class and still fail. That's right. <laughs> yes. Uh, you can say he had a bit of an ego situation. A bit, yes. Uh, in fact, we've talked about that. He claims that... With his 7th Cavalry, he could take out uh, any uh, group of Indians, no matter how big. And, of course, uh, that came to an end at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. That's right. And uh, uh, along with uh, uh, 210 of his men, he was age 36 at the time. That uh, Now, not as well-known as Custer, but kind of a major player in the Indian Wars was Nelson Miles. Mm -hmm. And this guy was... Uh, he was in the Civil War as a captain. He distinguished himself. Uh, he was promoted to Major General. And after the war, he uh, helped in the South. But uh, anyway, uh, this uh, Miles, uh, he battled Crazy Horse and took part in the pursuit of Sitting Bull after the Battle of the Little, Little Bighorn. And he also helped with the imprisonment and surrender of Geronimo. Uh, he also unfortunately was involved with the death of Sitting Bull with the massacre at Wounded Knee. Yep. So those are just a few of the major players. Uh, you know, here in southern Idaho, uh, there's General Connor. Um, 
you know, which Connor Creek over there by Albin and Elma, Elba is named after. So there's another, uh, a few of the major players in the uh, war against the Indians that uh, played a major part in getting them to finally surrender and, and go to the reservation. Okay, now i tell you what, real quick, I've only got a minute left here. Uh, I want to remind everybody that if you'd like to hear one of the podcasts, go ahead and, and tune in to uh, dr-history.com, dr-history.com, and uh, a lot of broadcasts heard all over the world. Give us a quick plug on that. I've only got 30 seconds left. Dr-history.com. Tell your friends and neighbors and anybody, family, that... You know, if they want to hear these stories, uh, we've enjoyed putting them on for the last few years, and now there's about 15 or 20 stories on our webpage, and we're heard throughout the world, and uh, we would like to, if you like our stories, please tune in to Dr., and then put the little dash, history. There you go. Uh, God bless, and we'll talk to you next week at the same time. Dr. History, better known as Dr. Ken Turner, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it, and have a safe trip back home. Have a good day, Seth. Thank you, sir. Uh, my favorite guy right there as far as coming on the radio and sharing all the history with us, and that's Dr. History. And don't forget, dr-history.com. You can listen to those programs anytime you want. Thank you very much. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.